So today we come to the final uh, teaching in the series we've been doing uh, through the Psalms. We've called it the Songs of the Saints. And when, when we went into this series, what I had in mind is that we would just take some of the Psalms and uh, just see how they might apply to our, our current moment. And so I think we've been now, this, this will be our eighth week in the Psalms. And when in, in going into it, it wasn't that I had eight psalms that I had chosen in advance that we would go through, but each week was just praying and, and seeking where the Lord would send us and wh- which psalm it would be that he would want to speak to us through. And it seems to me that each and every week, it, it's been a, a passage that has been just sort of relevant for the week and and relevant for the moment. And I think as we come to the conclusion of the series that this 133rd Psalm is also uh, very, very relevant because the the main thrust of this Psalm is the unity of God's people. And so I've entitled the message, The Beauty, Joy, and Power of Unity. And, and I think that this is um, a message that is vital to the church at this moment, that uh, if the church is going to have the kind of impact in the culture that it potentially could have and, and the impact that I think God wants us to have, we've got to get our own act together in, in this regard. We, we've got to realize that we are one people. And, and these days, I, I like to think of it in terms of the, the children of Israel. The children of Israel were one people, but they were made up of 12 different tribes. And, and the church is sort of like that too. You know, we have uh, different tribes in the church. We have a bunch of different denominations, and we have non-denominational groups, and we have Uh, movements, and we have uh, networks and things like that. And so there's this this broadness, just like there was within the 12 tribes, but then there's also a oneness, and we must remember that. So I think this psalm is going to help us to reflect on that. So this particular psalm, I want to remind you, is it's one of, and it's the uh, second to the last of the songs of ascent, or the songs of ascents, plural. And, and so these, remember, are the psalms that would be sung or quoted as the people annually would go up to the various festivals in Jerusalem. And, and they would go up uh, to Mount Zion, they would go up to the house of the Lord, and on their way, they they would take from these songs of ascents, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, and, and these would be the psalms that they would primarily focus on. And so they were the, the festive psalms. And this particular psalm, as we can see, it celebrates the joy, the delight, the sweetness, and the blessing of unity. So, I mean, think about it just in terms of uh, when, when you get together with, you, with your family, when you get together with close friends, we're, we're entering now fully into the holiday season. And what is it that we like about the holidays uh, beside the food and beside, uh, you know, in some cases, the gifts and things like that? Of course, that's all the gifts especially are something that the kids tend to be more focused on. But the older we get and all of that, I mean, isn't it about like family and friends and coming together and being together? So we know what that's like, right? Well, that's what it was like for the, these people. As they would go to these festivals, they would go with their families. They would go with their friends. They would go with their relatives that were living in different parts of the country, and they would all make their way to Mount Zion. They would all make their way up to Jerusalem. And this was a cause for great 
celebration. And one of the important components was the fact that they were one. They were all united together. I think more than ever, the world needs to see a united church. If the church is going to hold any attraction to unbelievers, those unbelievers are going to have to see that there is something positively different between us and the divided world that they are experiencing. I think the world, and I'm going to make it even more specific, I think our nation, and this is a fact, everybody knows it, the nation is more divided than it's ever been. And so that's, that's the reality in the culture. It's a culture of division. And the world has always been like this, and there are times when it is more uh, pronounced than others, but I think we're living in one of those times where uh, I, I know for sure in my lifetime, there's never been this kind of division where uh, political division, where you have people at war with one another over political ideology and, and things like that. So, so that's, that's the cultural uh, atmosphere that we're in. And here's the deal. The church is not to take its cues from the world. The church is to be a different thing. And so in one sense, I think that we actually have a moment. We have a moment where there, there can be a clear distinction between the church and the world. There, there can be something that's so obviously different that people look at it and say, I, I like what I see there. So unity is both a beautiful, it's attractive in its beauty, and it is a powerful thing. When the people of God are one, when we are working with each other instead of against each other, we're going to have a much greater impact. And so the, this whole idea of unity, let's remember this. This is God's idea. This is, this is what the Lord longs for. And we see that. We see it communicated here in this psalm. Behold how good and how, how pleasant, how lovely, how sweet, how delightful it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity but, you know, we also see it expressed in the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. So in the 17th chapter of John's gospel, we have what has commonly, <coughs> excuse me, been called the, uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it's, it's called that uh, by those who have read and, and studied the prayer. It's called that because it's the prayer where Jesus is, uh, the high priest was the intercessor for the people. It's the prayer where Jesus is interceding for his people, for the church. And in this prayer, five times he prays specifically for a oneness among his followers. Let me read to you from John chapter 17. Jesus prayed, he said, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made one, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. So five times Jesus prays, Father, that, that they may be one. And, and then he says, that they may be one, that the world would know that you sent me. So Jesus tells us that our unity is a powerful component in our witness to the world of, of the reality of who he is as the savior of the world. And so we see that the, the, um, 
the unity of the church is God's priority for the church. The Apostle Paul, he expresses something similar when he writes to the church in Ephesus. And listen to what Paul said. He said, I urge you, he's speaking to, he's speaking to believers. And, and he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And now listen here. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in you all. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. So this is something that we're going to have to put effort forth at doing because our our tendencies are toward division. Our tendencies are toward uh, thinking that our own perspective or our own view is the right one and everybody else is wrong. And so since I'm right and they're wrong, uh, I'm, I'm not going to associate with them. That's, that's the natural tendency. And so we need to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because again, this division among God's people is counterproductive to the advancement of God's kingdom in the world. Now, I, I like to think of this just to get the, a clear picture of, of God's heart for this. I like to think of this as a, the perspective of a, a parent, a father, um, in regard to their children. So many of you know I have four children uh, and a number of grandchildren. One of the things that I personally long for and, and delight in is my children loving each other and supporting each other and, and being one with each other. And, and when I see them all like that, you know what that does? It just it delights my heart. I, I just love it. Now, if there are times when there's a falling out between them in some way, that is not good. I, I'm, I don't like to see that. I, I love each of them equally and, equally, and I want them to love each other equally. And so this is, this is my longing as, as a father, and this is God's longing as our father. And when there is division among the people of God, just like it would grieve our hearts as human parents, we can safely say that God is grieved as well. The Bible tells us about the things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And to grieve means to make sad. And so when God sees division among his people, this is something that saddens him. And I don't know about you, but the, the thought of making God sad is something that I don't want to do. I, I want God to, to be able to rejoice over my life. And so let's talk just for a moment, though, about the problem of disunity. Christians seem to be able to divide over almost anything. I mean, seriously, this is, this is the history of the church, and this is the, the, the church's state in the, the present moment. And uh, over the years, over the past 20-plus years, the, the idea of, of unity has become really important to me. And it's something that God began to work in my heart, I think, um, about the time, probably about the time that uh, Cheryl and I moved with our family to the UK, and we planted a church there, and we, we planted a Calvary Chapel in the heart of London, but you know, we were the only Calvary Chapel for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And we were actually the only Calvary Chapel in the city of nine million people. And we learned really quickly, because as Calvary Chapel, we had been a really close-knit 
tribe that was quite often uh, excluding the other tribes and, and quite often also suspicious of all the other tribes. So the Lord takes us there and we plant this church and there's not a Calvary Chapel church within miles and miles and miles. And all of a sudden we're surrounded by, surrounded by Christians who are Baptist and Pentecostal and Anglican and so on and so on and so on. And it's like, oh, wow, we are amidst the other tribes. And God began to show us through our own experience uh, this, this need for this unity. So all of that to say, this, this began to be a passion for me as I was experiencing the, the importance of it. And then in moving back to the U.S. in 2000, it was something that I, I brought back with me. And I remember in those days, and even up until this very day, people would ask me, so Brian, what do you think the Lord's doing in the church today? Maybe something like that. And my response was always the same, and, and it still is in a sense. The Lord is calling his people to come together, to recognize that we are not uh, one another's enemies, but we are God's people, we're on the same team. We have different tribes, different perspectives, different ways of doing things, but we're all part of one's family. So we don't want to uh, continue the pattern of division that has plagued the history of the church and is even a problem at the present moment. So here's, here's just some... I'm going to go through this really quickly. But here are some of the things that, that Christians have divided over, are currently dividing over. And I just want to show you why it's, it's just wrong for us to do this. So uh, some of the things are theological. Some of them are uh, having to do with church culture. And, and some of them have to do with just you know, the, the moment that we're living in. But theologically, for, for example... Eschatology uh, is a term that some of you might be familiar with, maybe not everybody, but eschatology is, uh, it's, it's the Greek, it's kind of the anglicizing of the Greek for the study of the last days or the end times. So there's, there's a variety of different views about what the Bible teaches in regard to the last days. So we historically, as a church and as a, as a group of churches, uh, we have held to what's called a premillennial view of eschatology. And we've also had the other additional component of believing in a rapture and believing that the rapture is pre-tribulational. Now, this might surprise you, but not everybody in the Christian church uh, thinks the same way that we do about that. So premillennial means that we believe that Jesus Christ will come back to the earth and he will inaugurate the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, six times it mentions the fact that Jesus will reign uh, for a thousand years. Now, I take that literally, and I think that it's premillennial. But, you know, many Christians... Many, many Christians, and probably most Christians outside of the United States, would hold a different view. They look at Revelation 20, and they see these thousand-year reign of Christ, and they, they don't think that that's a literal thousand years. They think it's a figurative term, and they think it just refers to this indefinite reign of Christ. And they have some different perspectives on how that reign of Christ ultimately develops. Pre-Mill thinks that the, the reign of Christ starts with Christ's return. Uh, the uh, A-Mill position or all-Mill uh, position has an idea that maybe the church is the one who initiates this, uh, or maybe Jesus already started his reign because of what he's done to bring about the church and to break the power of the devil and so forth. And so uh, many, many Good Christian people are on both sides of this issue. But quite often, those good Christian people are at war with each other over the difference of perspective on these things. And so this is one example. Uh, another example would be uh, the age of the earth. So 
again, you have some Christians who are young earth creationists. They believe that the world was created in, or the universe, everything was created in six literal days, 24 hour periods of time. And it's clear that that's what Genesis says. And so, uh, and, and if you do the chronology in the Bible, the earth ends up being, you know, roughly six to 10,000 years old. And that's what the Bible teaches. But then you have equally as committed Christians who look at that and say, well, I don't know if these are really 24-hour days. It seems like these are maybe periods of time. And so they hold to what is called an old earth view of creation. And quite often, there is a considerable amount of contention among Christians who hold these different views. Now, these things that I'm talking about, we have to understand, these are secondary issues. It, your salvation is not dependent on your eschatology. Your salvation is not dependent on how old you think the earth is. These are secondary things. So, because they're secondary, there's room for different perspectives on it. But a lot of times we have a hard time seeing that. We get in our minds that this is the right view and anybody who holds to a different view is wrong. And then we even want to put them in the category of being like a heretic or something. And we feel that we need to openly criticize them. We feel that we need to disassociate from them. And you see, this is where the problem lies. And so we have to recognize that these are non-essential matters. These are not salvation issues. Truly saved people can hold different views on these things and do hold different views and have held different views all throughout the, the majority of the history of the church. And, and God has equally blessed people with different views on these things. And so again, this is something that, that's so important because the tendency is to get all contentious about it. So um, over the years, I've had the privilege of getting to know and, and do some ministry with Dr. John Lennox. Dr. John Lennox is one of the great voices for the Christian faith in the world today. He's absolutely amazing. Uh, Harvard mathematics professor, uh, well-known uh, public intellectual, uh, debated Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and a whole strew of other uh, of the of the atheist and uh, just an, an amazing Christian man a beautiful story of of God's work in his own life and a, a, a powerful witness for uh, the gospel publicly so some of you remember, he's been here. He's spoken at our church. We've done uh, events with him uh, where we did, uh, you know, kind of outreach type things. But maybe you remember not that long ago, we had him speak for us on a Sunday morning. Now, believe it or not, I got a ton of criticism for that. Like, you know, what is Brian doing? This just shows that he's compromised because after all, he had John Lennox and John Lennox is an old earth creationist. So for some Christian people, that was like a major uh, offense against the gospel because I had an old earth person speak. Now, listen, the Bible doesn't actually tell us how old the earth is, nor does the Bible insert that as a part of the gospel. Go into the world, preach the gospel to everyone, here's the gospel, and remind them of how old the earth is. And then, if they agree, they can be saved. No, 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 no. It, it, that is not the case. Uh, Dr. Lennox said this to me. And I'm going to share this with you just because it illustrates my point. He said to me, right backstage, we were talking to each other. And he said to me, he said, you know, um, he said, Brian, you are the nicest young earth creationist I've ever met. <laughs> now, what that tells me, it, it's not patting myself on the back for being nice, what it tells me is, is how sad it is that he has been uh, mistreated for his position by people who hold to a young earth. 
See, these are the things that as Christians, we have to stop doing this kind of stuff. Now, we could talk about the, the worship wars among Christians. Uh, you know, there are plenty of Christians who think that you ought to worship God in this fashion. Some of them hold to the idea that worship of God should be very solemn and subdued, and others believe that it should be very exuberant and vibrant and exciting. And rather than recognizing that, you know, some people's personalities are just more bent toward a solemn approach, and some people's personalities are, lend themselves more to uh, an excitable approach. There's a, <laughs> there it is right there. That's the excitable approach. Uh, but, you know, this is the stuff that Christians literally fight over. And because this group of people does it this way, then we automatically see them as wrong. Uh, quick story. When I lived in London, I went to this event, Ravi Zacharias was speaking at an event in central London, and I went to the event, and if anybody remembers Ravi or, or knows of him, he's, he's not at all the kind of person that you're going to expect to see in one of these super wild, sort of charismatic type of worship services. But the, the church that was sponsoring Ravi speaking was that kind of church. So we went to church, and, and I was sitting there. And this is a big thing in the UK. In the UK, during their worship times, uh, the more charismatic groups in the UK, they, they do this flag-waving thing. They just love to pull out the flags, and they kind of twirl the flags around. And they do, you know, they do their thing. The band's playing, the worship is going, and they're twirling around with the flags and all of this, you know. And, and I have to be honest. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, this is so dumb. You know, this is, what are they doing up there? This is just, and, and I'm really internally just struggling with all of this. And honestly, as, as I'm kind of going through this internally, I felt the Holy Spirit just speak to me. And, and really the Lord just said, Brian, uh, do you have a problem with this? And I'm like, yeah, I got a big problem with this, Lord. And, and you know, at the same moment, the Lord said, well, I don't, so get over it. And I was like, oh, okay, right. And, and really, it was a teaching moment for me because I realized what was happening really was my, I was putting my preference up as the standard for what God would accept. I do not prefer this kind of uh, activity in, in, in the midst of a church, but, it, but it's really just my preference. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing sinful about it. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't wave a flag when you want to worship Jesus. But you see, I let my, my culture and my preference, I let that um, color my perspective on this group of people. So that was a, a teaching moment for me. Then there is the highly contentious issue of women's roles in ministry. Boy, I'll tell you, the past couple of years, this has just arisen as, a number, as, as kind of a number one issue to fight over. Um, you know, what, what can a woman legitimately do uh, in regard to ministry? And people have a strong conviction that the Bible says that women cannot uh, preach to um, mixed audiences of, of men and women, and, and women cannot be pastors and so on. But then there's another group of Christians that say, well, uh, we think that women can. And so here's a group that has their set of scriptures and their understanding of it. Here's another group who has their set of scriptures and an understanding of it as well. But, but once again, we have to understand that this is a uh, secondary issue. Then more, more to the moment, we have now this question about race issues. And, and this has now become a very divisive thing within the church. There are Christians in the church, um, oftentimes African-American Christians, who do believe that there is such a thing in this nation as systemic racism and injustice. Not every African-American Christian believes that, but I would say the majority do. And then... Of course, there are those who do not believe that. They do not believe there's any such thing as systemic racism, at least not in these days, and there isn't really racial injustice today. And, and I would say the majority of white Christians feel that way, except there are handfuls of white Christians that 
uh, would disagree on that. So, so this has become, in this moment, this has become a very contentious thing. And if you, let's just say you come down on the side of thinking that there actually is something called systemic racism, then, and you're a Christian, then you have a group of Christians that will be saying uh, you're, you're compromised, you're buying into Marxism, you've, you've swallowed the pill of socialism, you know, all, all of this kind of stuff, and so you're bad. And, and we've, got to, um, we've got to tag you as a, as a person that people should stay away from. And then you get a similar thing coming from the other direction. This is happening right now as we speak. And then, uh, of course, as we've already alluded to and as we all know, that politics um, have become an incredibly divisive thing, not just in the nation, but it's become incredibly device, uh, divisive in the church. And so there are Christians today, right this moment, who do not believe that you can actually be a Christian and be part of uh, this particular political party. So uh, there are Christians who, who I know who would say, and I've heard it, you cannot be a Christian and be a Democrat. You cannot be a Christian and be a Democrat. Or if you are a Christian and a Democrat, your Christianity is highly suspect. Now, there are other Christians who would say the same thing in the other direction. Not so much that you couldn't be a Christian and be a Republican, but more specifically, you couldn't be a Christian and support President Donald Trump. Uh, there, are, there are plenty of people. So here's a battle on both sides of this. Ed Stetzer, in his book, um, Christians in the Age of Outrage, he said this. He said, few idols have wrecked as much havoc in the church and hurt our witness more than the way evangelicals have engaged in politics. The upswing in political polarization in culture in the past generation has slowly trickled down into the pews with disastrous effects. The near-blind devotion of many evangelicals toward political parties has produced a litany of vicious anti-gospel rhetoric from the very people claiming to engage the world for the gospel. You know, he's right. It is true. And, and again, you see it today. It's crystal clear. And it's still clear right this moment as we're in this sort of limbo place with the results of the election, we're still seeing that these battles are raging around us, Christian against Christian, brother rising up against brother, sister rising up against sister over these political kinds of things. And then finally, we have the COVID wars within the church. And so in the church today, you have a division over um, there is a pandemic, there is no pandemic. So you have Christians, you have Christian pastors who say, there is no pandemic, this is a joke, this is something the government has uh, foisted upon us uh, in order to uh, suppress and, and take away our liberty and so forth. And then you have other Christians who are equally passionate saying that this is, uh, this is absolutely a pandemic and, and this is one of the worst things that have happened in history. And if you don't understand that or agree with that, it's because you don't really love your neighbor and this is the, uh, the division. Uh, you should wear a mask at church. You shouldn't wear a mask at church. These are not just... I have an opinion, you have an opinion. These are things, I'm gonna question your Christianity over these things. That's what's happening in this moment. And there are those who would say those following government guidelines are not trusting God. You should just get rid of all of the precautions because of course there isn't really a pandemic and you should just gather, fill up your churches, don't wear a mask, don't social distance uh, because if you do, that just shows that you're uh, not trusting God. And then on the other side, those not following government guidelines are violating the Bible's teaching to submit to the authorities. So these are, at the moment, uh, the, the things. And look, we could like probably do a six-week series on this because you could just keep going 
on all of the different things that Christians have divided over. And again, let me emphasize, I mean, obviously some of these things are just purely social and cultural, like the COVID moment and like politics and so forth. But then others are more biblical and theological and doctrinal. But this sadly is the history of the church. And even in the face of the prayer of Jesus. How is it that we've just ignored the prayer of Jesus? How is it that we've just looked at the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, and we've just completely ignored that? Now, let me say this. Unity is, it's vital, but it's never at the uh, expense of truth. So we have to maintain our hold on the truth, but also at the same time, we have to seek unity. And so truth can never be given up even for the sake of unity. Now, in the past and still to some degree in the present as well, uh, 100 plus years ago or so, you had the, the, um, the ecumenical movement that began strong within the uh, mainline denominational churches. And their idea was that unity was the primary thing, and so truth had to take a back seat. So basically, uh, hard truths that people tended to divide over, uh, they needed to be set aside because we all need to come together. Now, most of the time, those were dealing with essential doctrines. And that's why that's a problem. So when we're talking about essential doctrines, we're talking about the nature of God, who God is. We're talking about uh, the person of Christ, who Jesus is. So God is triune. Jesus is divine. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross, that that was a, a, an atoning death for us. Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, he bodily rose from the dead. And he's going to come again. He's going to judge the living and the dead. The Bible is God's authority for faith and practice for, for God's people. Those are the non-negotiable things. Those are the truths that we can never give up. And those are the truths that we have to fight for. And, and sometimes we will have to divide over that. Because that's the dividing line, really, between believers and unbelievers. There are people who say they're Christians, but then they, they reject all of that. So even though they're still having the label of Christian, their, their position has put them outside of the faith. So um, that's a reality. And, and so that's an area where we can never compromise. But here's what we have to realize with all of these secondary issues, which is generally what we get divided over, um, we, we have to hold fast to the truth, but our interpretations of the truth are not necessarily the truth. You see, the Bible says things that are crystal clear, all Christians are agreed on. The Bible says things that aren't so crystal clear. And so I'm going to have to interpret then what the Bible means by that. And here's the point. My interpretation is not necessarily the only possibility. It's not necessarily the right interpretation. And so when it comes to these kinds of issues, here's what we need to do. We need to be humble enough to recognize that there are other interpretations when it comes to secondary matters. There's other interpretations. So like I was saying with some of the things that we already talked about, um, eschatology is, you know, is the rapture before the tribulation or is it after the tribulation? Is the millennium started by Christ's return or is the millennium an indefinite period of time? There, there is uh, enough ambiguity in scripture that to dogmatically say that my understanding of this is absolutely 100% certain and it's irrefutable, it's indisputable, that's just not true. Because 
it, if it was so crystal clear, it, it, there would be no debate about it. So whether it's eschatology or, like I said, the age of the earth, nobody can prove the age of the earth. The Bible doesn't tell us the age of the earth. The Bible nowhere puts our perspective on the age of the earth as having anything to do with the, the, the gospel. And so these are the um, interpretations that I have to recognize are possibilities. And so I have to look at those holding views that differ from my view as people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who God loves equally as he loves me, and I have to recognize that they deserve uh, my respect and my kindness, and that I fully embrace them as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is the way we have to approach these things. And, and I want to tell you just from a personal um, standpoint. So I'm in a, um, as some of you know, I'm in a cohort with 15 men um, who come from all different theological persuasions. Everyone, their persuasion is orthodox in that every single person in the cohort is a genuine believer in Christ and biblical authority, all of those kinds of things. But in that group of, of us, 15, there's probably not a single person in the group who would fully 100% agree with anybody else in the group on everything. So we have a diversity of opinions in this room about certain things. And I was with this group of people a few weeks ago when we sat in the room and you know, uh, Actually, as I look across the room, there were some Democrats there. And there were some independents and there were some Republicans. And there were people who were young earth and old earth. And there were people that had this eschatology and people that had that eschatology. But you know what? We all have this, we all have this beautiful fellowship with each other because we're not focusing on the secondary things. We're focusing on the main thing. The main thing being Christ and the gospel. So we have to learn how to do this, and we better learn it sooner rather than later. Because the longer we allow for these kinds of divisions to dominate, the longer we put the church in a position of ineffectiveness. And so we have got to get over these things. And, and interestingly, all of us in the group have, have often wondered and thought about, you know, maybe God's brought us together because we're from such diverse backgrounds. Maybe God's brought us together to kind of model collectively what it's like to have theological disagreements and strong disagreements on secondary issues, but still to love each other and to partner together in the gospel. Maybe he has. We'll see. Uh, time will tell. But let's, um, let's move on here. And let's, let's look at the, the psalm itself here real quickly. So behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. You know, this word um, pleasant is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really great word. It could also be translated delightful, sweet, lovely. And, and so look at that. Brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. Oh, there's something so delightful about that. There's something sweet about that. There's something lovely about that. And, and it really is true. It's really true. And the psalmist recognized it. Now, culturally speaking, we've seen some really ugly moments in recent times, haven't we? We've seen protests and riots and violence and people shouting and screaming at one another and, and people dismissing and canceling one another. And this atmosphere is unpleasant to say the least. This is very, very unpleasant atmosphere. Listen, the church is to be an alternative to all that, not a religious version of it. And I say that because that's kind of what's happened. The division that's out in the culture that has always been in the world. 
and always will be in the world. But when that creeps into the church, that is when we've got a big problem. And so we sometimes, we're just a religious version of the outside world. And that is what we cannot be. The church is the place where the true, the good, and the beautiful are to be on display. On display. You know, when something's on display, what is it? It's something that you, you look at, you observe it. And listen, the world is observing the church. The world observes. When a person says they're a Christian, do you know what happens? Automatically, people look at you, watch you. They observe you to see if your life is consistent with your claim. And when there is, in the larger culture, there's a group of people identified as the church, guess what? The culture looks on and says, okay, what are they like? So we are on display. In the second century, a uh, philosopher was doing that very thing. He was observing the Christians. And this is what he wrote in his observation of the Christian community. This is a quote that I've shared many times, but it's really impactful. This is what he saw. He said concerning these Christians, they seek to persuade their servants their maidservants, their children, whoever it might be, uh, they seek to persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction, brothers and sisters, regardless of their background or whatever the case might be. And it says this, they walk in all humility and kindness and they love one another. When they see a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are of the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. Such is the law of the Christians and such is their conduct. So this is, this is an outside person looking in at the church in his generation, in the second century. But this is the thing I want us to think about. Here's what he observes. They walk in all humility and kindness, and they love one another. See, I would say that's what's missing in the, in the current moment in the church. Humility, kindness, and love. But those are indispensable things. It sounds like love and unity were top priorities for the early Christians. They are to be top priorities for us today because unity brings us power and will ultimately result in great fruitfulness. And that's what the psalm goes on to indicate. So look at verse 2. Speaking of this unity, how this, this sweet, this lovely thing among brothers and sisters, verse 2 says, it is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Now, I think for modern readers, even for Christians, we look at this and think, what does this mean? What, is, what does this have to do with uh, unity? So we need to have a little bit of background. So Aaron, who's Aaron? Well, he's the, he's the high priest over the nation. And what's this, what's this stuff about the oil running down his beard? That sounds kind of weird. Well, the high priest, like the, the kings and the prophets, the thing that distinguished them was the anointing of God. You see, God's spirit came upon them, and the symbol of the spirit of God coming upon them was the oil that was poured over them. So when Aaron had the, the oil poured upon him, it was symbolic of the Spirit of God coming upon him. And the Spirit of God uh, running down even onto the garment. So it's like the fullness of the Spirit coming upon the people of God. But notice that the connection is with unity. So when God's people dwell together in unity, there is an anointing. There is power in that. 
And if we just think of it, even in very practical terms, uh, you know, think of it in the terms of a team, a, a football team or a basketball team or, you know, where you're a team, you, you have to work together. If a team goes out on the field and decides that, well, everybody's just going to do their own thing, that team's going to lose. You, you have to work as a unit. You have to have uh, an objective together and you have to be committed to that together and you have to support one another. That's how you're going to succeed. And so likewise with the church. And as there is a oneness among the people of God, there is a power to that. There's a supernatural power that comes along with it. And then the second thing it says is this. It is like the dew of Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion. That's another kind of a weird take on it. What, what is that talking about? Well, dew is always a reference to, to watering toward fruitfulness. So the dew is God's way of watering the earth so that uh, the plants can bring forth fruit. And so again, unity lends itself to fruitfulness. As God's people are united together, working together, fruitfulness will be the result of that. And now here's one other addition to it. It's like the dew of Hermon falling upon the mountains of Zion. So here's the interesting component here. The dew of Hermon under normal circumstances would never fall on the mountains of Zion simply because of the distance between the two mountain ranges. So Hermon is in the very northern part of the country, and Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is in the southern part of the country. And the distance is too great. The dew, the, the dew of Hermon, under normal circumstances, would never fall on the mountains of Zion. So we're talking here about a, a supernatural, an extraordinary thing that's happening. But again, the extraordinary thing is happening around the people of God being united together. You know, here's an interesting fact of history. When God has poured out his spirit in extraordinary ways, it's never been on one isolated group at all. It's never been on one denomination. It's never been on one movement. It's never been on one network. It's never been that. It's always broad. It always encompasses. So this church was born in a, in a time, really, of a great move of God's Spirit. And for those of us who have been here a long time and those of us who know a little bit about the history, sometimes we tend to think that, you know, the whole church world was dead and there weren't any Christians and one day uh, God just poured out His Spirit and here it is, Calvary Chapel came forth. And then multiplied out into the world. Well, that's really not the story. It's kind of a mythology that's developed, but that's really not the story. The story is God began pouring out his spirit. And Pastor Chuck and the congregation, uh, they were part of this larger thing. Did you know that at the time that all of this was taking place in the late 60s and the, the early 70s, this really extraordinary thing that, that goes down now in history is known as the Jesus Movement, where it, re it really was a unique period of time. Very, very unique. I mean, people were just coming to Christ right and left. It was just extraordinary. But did you know that that was happening among Episcopalians? It was happening among Baptists. It was happening among Presbyterians. It was happening among uh, Pentecostals. And it was happening among Roman Catholics. It was happening all over the place. Because as God pours out his spirit, it encompasses all of his people. And so this is the power of unity. And, and back in those days, I, I remember uh, back in those days, Pastor Chuck, for example, he would, of course, he was leading Calvary Chapel, but, you know, he was speaking at all different kinds of places for different groups of people. And sometimes he was criticized for it. People would say to him, well, what are you speaking for them for? They're, you know, you shouldn't have any association with them. And he'd just shrug his shoulders and just go do it anyway. And 
He understood the power of unity. And so, we must understand that as well. So, the way to unity as we close. How do we get there? How, how do we make steps toward that? And, and of course, it starts with us personally. And it can start with us congregationally as well. And it can start with us even beyond that because we are connected to a larger uh, group of churches. But how do, what is the way to unity? Well, number one, we need to realize that in Christ there is a unity that already exists. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians? He didn't say, uh, create the unity of the Spirit. He said, keep it. And give every effort to keep it. It already exists. Because everyone who believes in Jesus truly is a child of God. And all of us have the same Father and Lord, whether we recognize it or not, and sometimes whether we like it or not. Hey, this is your brother. This is your sister. And so if I just start with that, and if I think about my criticism and all of that, and, and I pause before I go forward in that, and I think, wait a second, this person is loved by God. This person is a child of God as equally as I am a child of God. And so I need to be careful, and I need to recognize that, you know, God... Um, obviously isn't as concerned about a lot of these things that we are concerned about because he equally blesses people with different perspectives and views. I mean, it's, it's really true. God has blessed people that I totally disagree with on secondary issues. And sometimes that's frustrating. It's like, but Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so right. I mean, you should bless me because, you know, I, I'm right about this. And those, what are you blessing those people for? We can be like that, can't we? But, you know, honestly, I mean, I've learned this over the years. I am, I am very slow these days to criticize because I look at things and I, I, I think, well, what about this and what about that and this and that? But then I see God doing something. So it's like, okay, Lord. Because other people look at us and say the same thing. We've all got our faults. We've all got our differences. We've all got like the tribes of Israel. Each tribe was unique. Each tribe was different. No tribe really did it the same way. But guess what they were? They were all the children of Israel, regardless of their tribe. And that's the church, my friends. We are all the people of God, regardless of our tribe. So realize that, and then secondly, build on unity by focusing on our commonalities rather than our differences. That's what we have to do. So as I mentioned, this group of 15 guys that I'm with, we have a ton of differences between us, a ton of differences, but we have the greatest time together because we don't focus on our differences. I mean, there's guys in the group that think, like this idea of a rapture, that's, that's ridiculous. Did you know there are Christians who think that the idea of the rapture is ridiculous? There are. And there are good Christians that think that. One of the great preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he just, he couldn't get his head around anybody who thought there was a rapture. For him, he just thought that was the, just the most ridiculous idea, that there was a rapture. And he would talk about it like that, like that foolish idea of the rapture. You know, he would just sort of shake his head with it. But he was one of the great preachers of the time, and God used him in an extraordinary fashion. And so I'm sitting in a group of people, and some of them think the same thing about the rapture. You know what? We're not talking about the rapture. Because I don't really care what they think about it. I care what they think about Christ and the gospel and his death and his resurrection and the authority of God's word. Those are the things that matter the most. Those are the real important things. We can sit around and have a conversation about the rapture, and we can agree to disagree in the end. But that's what we have to learn to do. We have to focus on our commonalities rather than our differences. I, I know I'm going a little bit late, but I want to just say uh, one more thing. One of, the, one of the guys in our group is um, part of the vineyard. He's the northeast, um, northeastern representative representative for the vineyard. 
he, he kind of oversees the churches in the northeastern part of the country. And if any of you know uh, the history, a lot of people don't know this. The vineyard used to be Calvary Chapel. So all of the original vineyard pastors were formerly Calvary Chapel pastors. The one who ended up leading the vineyard, um, uh, John Wimber, John Wimber was part of the staff of this church. Uh, but there came a point where there was a division. There came a point where uh, we didn't see eye to eye on certain things, and so there was a split. In looking back, I think we handled that really poorly. We handled it poorly on both sides. Calvary Chapel handled it very poorly. I think Vineyard guys handled it poorly. It, it was one of those things where it was really a secondary issue that we saw differently, and probably needed to go our separate ways, but we could have gone our separate ways in love, but we didn't. We chose to have a war that went on for years and years and years. Uh, you know, Calvary went strongly into uh, Bible teaching. The vineyard went more into worship and things like that. And it got to the point where there were Calvary chapels that would not allow a vineyard song to be sung in the church. What? <laughs> You heard me. That's what. <laughs> there came a point where that's the, that's the contention that was between us. Now, as I said, my friend John, who's part of the group, uh, it's so funny because you know having that historic rift between us, it's just been so beautiful for us to come together and and to kind of be able to you know laugh about a little bit of it because of how how foolish it was. But I just I love this guy. He's he's so amazing. And I think, Lord, I'm so glad that you've healed this weirdness so I could be in a close friendship with, with this guy who's a vineyard pastor. And some of the guys in the group know the history between the two. Sometimes they'll make a little joke here or there, you know. And we can just, at this stage, we can laugh it off. But that's, we, we need to grow out of that stuff. And that's the point. We, we need to grow out of this stuff. So we focus on our commonalities. And finally... We have to remember this. Unity is rooted in love for one another. You see, if we're all divided up and if we're all upset and if we're questioning somebody's salvation or maybe we haven't gone that far, but we're just questioning the validity of their commitment, are they really devoted? If, if that's where we're at, then, you know, we're really, we're really not walking in love because... Love believes all things. Love believes the best. And so unity is rooted in love for one another. John put it this way, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone who loves knows God. They that do not love do not know God for God is love. Now, love doesn't mean we never disagree Cheryl and I deeply love each other. We disagree all the time, even after 40 years of being in love. So love doesn't mean we never disagree. It means we don't let our disagreements destroy our unity. We just disagree on things. It's okay to disagree on things. Like I said, not everything is as clear as sometimes we think it is. Not everything is as clear as we'd like it to be. There are different interpretations, and we have to just respect that. And so this is where we all need to land. Jesus said it. I'll close with this word. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, that's going, to be the, that's going to be the thing to the onlooker, to the, thing, to the person who's, who's looking in at the church. It's going to be our humility, our kindness, and our love. And let me say this, in these days where those things are absent in the culture around us, this is an opportunity for the church to shine even more brightly. So God help us to do it. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. And I don't know how many people in the room are guilty of this, but I know I certainly have been. And so Lord, forgive us for our pettiness, 
Forgive us for our judgmentalism and our criticism of other believers. Help us to recognize, Lord, that we are one people of God through our faith in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would, God, just heal the divisions within your church. And Lord, as we go into this season of of life as church in the world, as church in this country, oh God, may we be shining forth the glorious gospel, the gospel that says that you love and you came to save and a gospel that says that we love one another regardless of differing opinions. Lord, may that become the the ethos of our lives as your people together. We pray that for us as a congregation, and we pray that, Lord, for your church at large. In Jesus' name.